Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast powered by Kasoon Car. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Dorr, QC. Chris is one of the UK's leading barristers, specialising in criminal law, serious fraud, business regulation and professional discipline. Chris was called to the bar in 1993 and was appointed as Queen's Counsel in 2013. Chris's principal client base covers professionals, business people, high net worth individuals, and public figures. In addition to criminal and regulatory proceedings in courts and tribunals, Chris is an expert in pre-charge advice and strategy, as well as criminal law implications and commercial disputes. Chris recently published his best-selling book, Justice on Trial, which discusses how our criminal justice system is broken which we'll be talking lots more about today. So, a very big welcome, Chris. Afternoon, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, you know, a big intro for my book, which is I'm very excited about. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a lot more about that a little later on. But before we go through your illustrious career and your book, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Suits in terms of its reality of the law? Two. <laughs> and that sounds about right. Most people are pretty blunt in saying anything above five is, is not going to happen. So uh, we'll, we'll move swiftly no. on. So let's start at the beginning. Perhaps tell our listeners a bit about your, your sort of family background and, and upbringing. Okay, yeah. Well, so I grew up in, of all places, Milton Keynes, which at the time was a fairly new place, but um, I was born in the early 70s. Uh, my dad was a, a builder. Uh, my mum was, at the time, worked in shops and then later on became a, a care assistant in an old people's home. So it was a very kind of ordinary kind of working class background, I guess you'd say. Uh, went to a very ordinary comprehensive school in Milton Keynes. Didn't do great at school, uh, to be honest with you. Wasn't really engaged with school and it wasn't really the, the, the best period for state education back in the in the 80s so, so i fell on my feet at the age of 16 my mum and dad moved somewhere where they had a brilliant state sixth form college just by chance i ended up there after you know leaving home to go and sell donuts on the beach in the south of france and failing catastrophically in that endeavor uh, so i came back with hell between my legs and i went to sixth form college and uh, and thankfully it was a great place the, the teaching staff were amazing and inspirational and Having spent most of my kind of uh, childhood uh, taking no notice of education at all, I suddenly got the bug at the age of 16 and thankfully did really well at A-levels. And I don't know how far you want to go with this, Rob, but I was able to uh, to then go on to Manchester University after a bit of time working. I took a year out and worked for a bit in business and then did a law degree and the rest is history. Uh, although, I'm, you know, how much history you want, you tell me. <laughs> well, I guess let's, let's let's bring it to to the legal profession. Did where, where did your sort of spark for wanting to go into the the legal profession come from? Was that something you always sort of thought about? Or yeah, tell us more about that. Not at all. So so as I explained, my parents didn't go to university, and nobody in my family had ever been to university, let alone um, you know entered one of the professions, and let alone you know got to the level of silk or anything like that. So it was totally off my radar as a child, and that may well be why I didn't really try hard at school. When I went to sixth form college, I did a careers test on a computer where you kind of fill in the bit, things you like and you don't like, et cetera. And the computer just spat out two options as for careers. And one was actor and the other was barrister. They were the only two careers on offer to me by the, on the computer. Um, I, didn't, I, I was an okay actor. I used to act at sort of in, in school productions or college productions and so on, but I, I definitely wasn't good enough to be a professional actor. So I went to court uh, in the summer holidays of my first year of A-level. So I was just 17 years old. 
And I went and watched uh, some criminal trials from the public gallery. I watched a big drugs conspiracy case, and I think I watched a bit of a murder case. And basically, I just became utterly hooked on the, the drama, the excitement, the human interest, and the passion of it all, the, you know, the way in which the verdict go you know, either way. And the whole thing was so thrilling and exciting to me that I just decided that I had to do everything within my power to get to get that as a job, to become a criminal defense barrister or a criminal barrister. And that was it. It was a spark, and it lit up the rest of my life and career. And I've now been at the bar for 26 years. So, uh, And it all goes back to that computer career step. I have no doubt if I hadn't done that test, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. What a journey and what a successful career you've, you've had. And before we sort of jump into the, the book, it'd be just great to sort of tell our listeners a bit about some of your experiences because you had 26 sort of fantastic years with, with Lincoln House Chambers and, and recently moved to New Chambers. Do you want to kind of just give some summary headlines of your, your, your experience? Yeah. So I started off at a very small chambers, which no longer exists uh, up in Manchester, and just sort of cut my teeth on the usual stuff, you know, burglaries and shoplifters, street sex workers who were sort of being constantly recycled through the magistrate's court. So public order, you know, big punch-ups outside pubs. So all that sort of low-level stuff. Uh, I, I defended hundreds of people in my first sort of probably five years, did dozens and dozens of trials, both in the magistrate's court and, and uh, before too long in, in the Crown Court, just spent years and years and years relentlessly practicing, honing my skills, building sort of networks of contact who, could, who would refer work to me and, and instruct me uh, to defend in cases. So the first sort of five years was just gathering experience and just learning the job. The next five years was kind of consolidating that, building my practice, getting into ever heavier and more meaty cases, and then the following decade, so the sort of second decade of practice, was really just, you know, taking it up to a whole new level to the point where I'd been at the bar, I think, 19 years, 18, 19 years, and I, uh, I applied for Silk. And that was a time when my practice was almost entirely complex and serious crime, organized crime, serious fraud, really difficult kind of complex murder conspiracies. Uh, and on the back of that practice of nearly 20 years, I, I was appointed Silk uh, nearly eight years ago now. But in Silk, my practice is completely different. It's all over the show. It's everything from England footballers to international corporations to oil refinery frauds in Singapore to, you know, literally, this, this, it's a, the most eclectic mix of clients and cases. And Silk, for me, is the opportunity to get involved in just so many more things. And it's so much more interesting in many ways. And I did 20 years of the, of the heavy sort of mainstream but heavy serious crime and i still do some of that but my practice now is, is literally as eclectic as, as anyone can be and therefore all the more thrilling and exciting for it yeah no and that sounds truly truly fascinating i love that kind of spread of work that you do and again just so before we talk on about justice on trial you do a lot of mentoring work for the for the general council of bar of england and wales do you want to just tell us a bit more about that I hesitate to call it a lot. I'm on the panel. Uh, I'd like to do more. It's amazing, actually. Not that many reach out. But the mentoring I do on the Bar Council scheme is for people who are wanting to apply for Silk and maybe slightly lacking in confidence or maybe they've applied and been rejected and they're looking for support from someone who's been through the process and obviously successfully been through the process. So my kind of condition of mentoring is that I only mentor people who come from what you might call non-traditional backgrounds, you know, state school educated or ethnic minority groups who, who are kind of traditionally underrepresented in silk and find it more difficult, I think, to kind of make the progress that's needed, even if that progress is only in their own head in terms of confidence to go forward. 
I do that, and I, and I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I liked being a pupil supervisor when I did that as well, which will be very different. Someone who's just starting out in their career. But I get a lot out of both mentoring and, and supporting students and young people as they come through into the profession. Because, to be honest with you, there wasn't really much like that when I was starting out. And it was a really quite intimidating place to come to the bar as a person from my background not having any contacts, not knowing anyone who's a judge or a QC and having to sort of start from completely from scratch. I do also work with a couple of youth charities. and I'm in the process of kind of um, working with some others to establish a new program for young people to try and give them, uh, you know, mentoring and social mobility support. It's just something that to me is just essential because, you know, our profession still remains less diverse than it should be. And really, uh, there is a big underrepresentation of certain groups, particularly state educated, uh, you know, in relative terms, it's still a much smaller group than it should be. So anything I can do, and, and to, you know, being frank with you, I get a lot out of it. It's very rewarding. I find it very interesting. So it's not really kind of something that I see as a sacrifice or anything at all. It's something that I really enjoy. Yeah, well, I, I definitely think there'll be a lot more people kind of reaching out um, off the back of, of everything you're doing and have done. And that leads us very nicely on to justice on trial, radical solutions for a system at breaking point. So, of course, this is your book. But let's start at the beginning with that. What was the motivation behind wanting to write the book? Well, it's very interesting. See, I remember I told you how I only became a barrister because of a computer. Well, uh, well, uh, in 1986 or seven, um, I had no intention of writing a book last year. I had a very large trial that was due to take place in September. I had a packed diary of, of other commitments, legal and professional commitments. But basically, one of my great passions has always been around the reform of drug law and the, you know, the insanity that is drug prohibition and the fact that basically many, many, if not most of our problems in the criminal justice system are caused directly by drug prohibition because of the vast amount of police resources taken up with drugs, the huge number of people in prison with either drug offences or drug-related offences. And it's just something that I just find so frustrating. So as a result of that kind of cumulative sense of irritation, frustration, just, you know, just disbelief almost that we're so wedded to prohibition, I wrote an article for The Spectator, which I think published in February or March of last year, and, and, and it had a cover credit, and, and it was about the legalization of drugs. And I set out in a sort of thousand-word article why I was so passionate about legalizing drugs. And it got a lot of attention in the media and on social media. And, and within a week or two of writing the article, I got an email from um, my now editor at Bloomsbury, Jamie, who sent me an email completely out of the blue saying, enjoyed your article in Spectator. Can I come and see you about uh, doing a book for us? And so he did, with one of his colleagues, come to my chambers, and we sat down. And then I think that was in March, possibly early April of last year. And then within a month, uh, they had commissioned justice on trial. And that meant I had to deliver a manuscript by, uh, by the end of last year. So I then spent many, many months whilst I was working full time. Fortunately, the trial I mentioned was adjourned for various reasons. So I had this chunk of time in the autumn, which I hadn't expected to have. But yeah, I spent months researching. I employed a team of researchers, in fact, to do some of the sort of heavy lifting because of the time frame involved. And I traveled a lot, as you know, for the book to the States and various places in Europe. And then I sat down on the 4th of October of last year. I say sat down. I was on an airplane. So I definitely sat down uh, on, on an airplane seat on my way to Atlanta for a research trip. And I started the manuscript on the 4th of October, and I delivered the manuscript on the 4th of January. So three months from starting the Word document to delivering the manuscript. Uh, and of course, there's a huge amount of work thereafter in terms of editing and 
proofreading and then there's so many people involved in book production you've got no idea but that's the potted history of how justice on trial was born um i didn't intend to write it but given the opportunity i bit their hand off and they've been brilliant i mean they're a great publisher bloomsbury really good people and i'm really happy with the way the book's gone and the ideas that are in it are getting out there and as you know, it's also full of juicy stories about cases I've done over the last 25 years. So it's a, it was it was great. I loved doing it, and I was really glad they asked me, and I hope people are enjoying reading as well. Yeah, and we definitely, you know, there's so much juicy stuff in there. We won't be able to go through it all today, so people should definitely check out the book. But in terms of, you know, a couple of points just to sort of dig a bit deeper, why do you think we haven't legalised drugs already? Well, I make the point in the book that I think it's pretty clear that it's because of the politics. You know, the politics are not in favor of drug legalization. You know, I'm advocating a fully licensed, a fully regulated system, not just a decriminalization, but a, a fully licensed and regulated uh, drug supply chain in the same way as alcohol is uh, fully regulated and licensed and, and tobacco for that matter. And that's something I think that is just politically unacceptable because the minute that, that, that a politician were to come out in public and say, I'm, I'm advocating the licensing regulation and legalization of let's say cocaine or heroin or ecstasy, unfortunately, I think the press would just have, it would be too tempting to, to kind of uh, just, just describe it as being sort of soft on crime, letting everybody take as much drugs as they want, our society will just turn into a sort of chaotic mess of druggies on every street corner, which of course is nonsense and isn't the case in any society that has liberalized drug, uh, drug laws. But, uh, but I think it's the politics. It's, Rob, it's as simple as that. Uh, if people, when they vote, were to stop listening to politicians who say, let's crack down, let's get tough, let's get on these drug dealers, these druggies need to be sorted out, you know, and all of this kind of you know, rhetoric that you hear at election time, if people started to see that for what it was, which is just nonsense and rhetoric and hot air, then maybe we'd start to get somewhere. Or, or if we get a really charismatic politician, perhaps on the left or the centre-left, who comes and actually says, I'm in favour of drugs, and makes the case, and is so overwhelmingly popular and elected with a big mandate that he, he or she can carry like serious drug reform. But the fact of the matter is, I'm afraid, like so many things that just never happen, it's about politics. In, in your book, you, um, you argue people should be criminalised after they are 18. What do we do about people who commit crimes before that age? Well, firstly, they, they, they shouldn't be called crimes because my argument is essentially it's not completely revolutionary because a country as conservative and, you know, with a small C and probably a large C as Luxembourg, uh, you know, sort of wealthy, very middle class kind of country and a small country in, in all Europe, that they have uh, the age of majority, uh, the age where you can vote, where you get all of the rights of being a citizen. And the age at which you get all of the responsibilities of being a citizen is the same age. It's 18. So in Luxembourg, they have the model, which is that if you're a child under 18, you are treated as a child for all purposes. So you can't vote. You can't, uh, you know, you, you can't, uh, you know, exercise any of the other rights that are only available to adults. But at the same time, you're not given and they have imposed upon you the criminal law and responsibilities that are imposed on adults. So there may be age of majority, the voting age, and all the other ages, uh, 18, and the age of criminal responsibility is also 18. And that, to me, is just so obviously common sense, because how can you say that a child isn't sufficiently mature to vote in an election, but is sufficiently mature, as we have it in England, from the age of 10, to be able to commit a crime? 
That just doesn't make any sense to me. The evidence is crystal clear that the development process, in fact, carried on in, well into the 20s. But certainly children under 18 are going through so much development that to judge them by the same standards as an adult is simply irrational, as well as being deeply damaging to the child, but also deeply damaging to society. Because children who are criminalized, as we do uh, in England, end up overwhelmingly being criminalized as adults because they've been conditioned to be, be themselves as criminals, behave in a criminal way, and they're put through the criminal process. They don't think there's anything odd about going to court or even being locked up in a young offender institution, which is basically a horrific prison. And so the whole way in which we look at children needs to change. And I think our society is not the best anyway when it comes to children. I think our children in the care system are badly dealt with and, and, and are not cared for adequately. And many, many of them end up in the justice and the prison system. So, so I just think we should look at what Luxembourg has done. And if a child does commit an act which would be criminal for an adult, you know, perhaps even a serious one, the way that the Luxembourg system works is that you, that, that you never call the child a young offender or a young criminal. What you do is you put them into an education environment which is appropriate. So if in the, in the tiny number of cases where a child is seriously violent, then you have a secure school where they, where they can't come and go. But for the great majority of children, where their, their behavior may be criminal in nature or would be for an adult, actually all they need is to be in an appropriate education environment with appropriate support, uh, appropriate living conditions, and, and a general welfare package in place. And nine out of ten of them come through the process and they, they just join society as a law-abiding citizen, whereas overwhelmingly in our system where we criminalize them, a very substantial number of them, the majority, in fact, will end up being adult criminals. So it's just it's applying the evidence to what seems to, to be a fairly obvious solution. And the evidence is that you shouldn't criminalize kids. And I don't myself believe that kids are ever criminal in the way that adults are. Yeah, no, and that's um, you know, a really interesting point. And I'm sure a lot of people will agree with you. And I guess just talking more around the, the book generally then, when you were researching for your book, where did you visit that had the largest impact on you? I visited uh, one of the county jails, which to me was like some sort of dystopian nightmare where mentally ill people were just caged to a huge cage, massively overcrowded, literally bouncing off the wall. And seeing that the US sort of mass incarceration model and the punitive nature of US uh, criminal justice, I mean, obviously we all know about it from film representations, but it was shocking, deeply shocking. And the fact that nobody in the system could justify it as well, the fact that even judges would say, well, we know this is crazy, but people vote for it, so we have to give them what they vote for, even though it does our society immeasurable harm. I mean, I was literally told that by a judge uh, in America. I know that what I do every day causes immeasurable harm to our society, but I have to do it, otherwise no one would vote for it. But so it was that one extreme. And at the other extreme, I think the thing that really moved me emotionally, if you like, on the journey was when I went to see the heroin-assisted uh, treatment program in Geneva and also the, the drug consumption rooms in Geneva, which very interestingly, so heroin-assisted treatment, for those who, who don't know, uh, is literally, as it suggests, heroin users are given heroin. They're given pharmaceutical-grade heroin twice a day. Uh, they come into a clinic. It's very pleasant. It's just like any sort of GP surgery or very pleasant environment. They have a consumption room with a sterilized uh, table, obviously needles and everything else. And they can take heroin with a nurse present so there's no danger of overdose. Their health is protected and they can have HIV tests and they can get access to healthcare. And, and the humanity of that 
was absolutely, in comparison to the way we treat drug users, and particularly the more serious heroin and cocaine and crack cocaine users in this country, was absolutely, you know, incredibly powerful, incredibly, incredibly moving. The professionals out there that I spoke to, the head of that clinic, the head of the overall addiction service in Geneva, an amazing woman who I describe in the book called Dr. Brewer, who's been in psychiatric addictions kind of medicine for 30 odd years. Just seeing the stark contrast between the inhumanity of the US approach, the sort of the, the very stark kind of just almost brutal approach of the Americans, even though it doesn't work, against the kinder, more humane and pragmatic approach of the Swiss, who are also a very conservative country. You know, it's not, it's not a sort of country full of radicals. But the Swiss reform was fascinating because the reason they reformed their drug laws was not because the politicians told the people to, but because the people in Switzerland, they have referenda on everything. I mean, almost everything is a referendum issue in Switzerland. And the people said to the government, we don't want drug users shooting up in, in, in our parks, playgrounds, or railway stations, you know, you know making our, our streets unsafe, making themselves unsafe, spreading HIV. So the public demanded reform of drug treatment and drug laws, and the public get what they want in Switzerland because they just vote for it on a referendum. And they voted time and again over the last 30 years almost to increase the amount of, uh, of, of, of rehabilitation, the amount of liberalization and, and legalization around drugs and the medicalization of it rather than the criminalization of it. And the success has been astounding. You know, they've gone from one of the highest rates of HIV and, and drug-related death in the world to one of the lowest. And, and if that's not good enough for, for, the, for those people who constantly argue for getting tough on drugs, then the body, you know, if you don't want to save lives, if you don't want to reduce crime, what, what the hell is the point of the law? Yeah, well said. Well said, Chris. And I think just moving moving on and talking about sort of other countries, I believe in your book, you discuss how, how Norway has a much better prison system. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so Norway uh, have a very small prison uh, system uh, in terms of you know, rate of incarceration. It's a, it's a fraction of ours and a minute fraction of that of the US with its 2.3 million or so. Uh, prisoners. But Norway's small prison system is reserved only for those who are genuinely violent and are risk to the public. So they don't imprison that many people, very, very few people in prison for non-violent crimes or financial crime or, or, or what have you, because they recognize that actually the outcomes for such people are far worse in prison than if you give them a sentence that involves them remaining outside prison. But the prisons themselves are very interesting. So the, the, the Norwegian model is to make prison, even for the most violent, because even the most violent, you know, with, with a tiny number of exceptions, will one day get out and will one day be back on the street. So, you, you know, it's no good writing people off because, you know, the, 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 almost every prisoner in Britain, bar about 60 or so, will get out. And the Norwegians, it's the same. Almost every single prisoner will get out. And so what they focus on is making the prison environment as normal as possible. So they have, you know, accommodation units that look like apartments or small rooms and shared living, rather than our conventional kind of uh, Victorian of, you know, clanging gates, big brick, red brick walls, and barbed wire, and the whole kind of psychological infrastructure that we impose on our prisoners. Not that they don't have any of that. They're low-rise buildings. They keep their prisoners secure, but they do so in a way that allows the prisoners to live as normally as possible. And the consequence of doing that, and you know, even to the point where they have a uh, cottage in one of the prisons in the grounds where, you know, prisoners who have proved themselves to be trustworthy, et cetera, you can have their family, even their wife, their kids can come and stay you know, for a weekend or 
or what have you, to just so that, again, they maintain normality, they maintain their family networks, they maintain their parental responsibilities, and so on. And so the idea of the whole system is that when they walk out of that prison, and after a relatively short time in most cases compared to English prisons, but when they walk out, they are basically not in, they don't walk out blinking in the sunlight, saying to themselves, oh my God, where am I? I don't recognize the alien world, you know. Uh, they, they live in a prison environment, which is as normal as possible. So when they come out of prison, they basically can blend back into society much more easily than our prisoners do. And our prisoners find it non impossible. I mean, there's a, you know, 75 or odd percent overall recidivism rate for people who have been to English prisons, whereas the Norwegian experience even though their prisoners on average are much more violent because they only imprison the most violent, but their recidivism rate after two years is only 20%, which is a tiny fraction of ours. And ultimately, I ask the same question as I do in relation to drugs. If the point of the criminal justice system is to reduce the overall amount of crime, then the Norwegian system and the Norwegian approach to sentencing is infinitely more successful in that basic objective than our completely broken system, which achieves the exact opposite at far greater cost. There we have it, folks. There we have it. Chris has spoken, um, and I totally, I totally hear where you're you're coming from. And in a recent um, interview with Channel Four, you mentioned that you are a disillusioned barrister. Has that affected the way you practice at all? No, it hasn't, because I think my disillusionment is with the system. And the inherent flaws in the system, and the fact that it's that, that you know the outcomes are so unsatisfactory, not just for my clients in some cases and other defendants across the system as a whole, but most importantly, the outcomes are deeply unsatisfactory for victims of crime who often wait many, many months, if not years, to get their case to court because the courts are so overcrowded with a backlog of nonsense cases that don't shouldn't even be there. In particular, low-level drug crime and other forms of perhaps financial and crime that could easily be dealt with by other means outside of the formal criminal justice system. So victims are badly treated in the system, and that fills me with despair and dismay because victims should be at the heart of the justice process, not an afterthought, as they so often are. But perhaps the most important reason I am dismayed and and and, and kind of you know, like, like you say, I, I just find. It's disheartening to look at a system I've worked in for so long, failed every single day. And the most important reason is the system does the opposite for that for which we have it and what it's there for, which is that instead of overall improving the quality of life in our society for all our citizens, reducing the amount of crime, improving the lives of those who enter the criminal justice system and those in the communities who are affected heavily by crime, all our system does is make it worse for everybody. You know what's really just breathtaking to me? are the billions of pounds that we waste in our system. It's basically like digging a hole and filling it back in again every day. And actually, we never quite fill it up as, as much as we've dug it. So, you know, increasingly, we've seen prison numbers almost double in a generation or more than double in a generation under, under governments of all parties. And we've seen, you know, rates of drug overdose and drug death you know, skyrocket. And, you know, these are the things that we should be looking to reduce. We've seen street crime, you know, knife violence, murder on the streets, gang violence, all of those things keep ratcheting up and up. And we keep trying the same old rubbish, the same old let's get tough, let's have longer sentences, even mandatory custodial sentences for teenagers at 16 for knife offenses, rather than asking ourselves, how do we make it work and how do we make it efficient? 
and stop wasting taxpayers' money on things that don't work and use the money on something that actually means that our society will be a happier and better and safer place. And that's why it's depressing. There's an opportunity, though. I've, I've given a really clear plan in the book. If anyone wants, you know, if, if, if hopefully, you know, one day a politician with some power will get hold of my book or at least read the chapter headings, which are fairly, uh, as you know, fairly direct and to the point, and think, okay, all right, well, maybe we're not going to go as far as this guy wants us to, but let's have at least have a look at some of these ideas and start talking about them. No, absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners that are far and wide would be quite happy to champion you and this book to make sure we get it into those right hands. Because as you say, a lot, a lot needs to be done and it is time for change. And one other thing I wanted to sort of talk around is, you know, being from the legal industry, a lot of it, a lot of things obviously in writing, but you also recorded an audio version of your book. So how did you find recording it? So I think I saw on LinkedIn that it took you about three straight days, if, if not more. Yeah, it's a three-day process. So basically, the audiobook, which is on Audible on the Amazon platform, uh, which I think most people are familiar with and use, but the, but the audiobook is basically the book. It's the whole book. It's not an edited version. So I read the entire book. It took three days because of edits, and obviously you have to, you know, you fluff the odd word here or there, so you have to go back and do a passage, a redo a passage, and uh, there's a stop start, and you get the occasional uh, break for a glass of water. So yeah, it was it was not quite three full days, but it was three days of studio time. The end result is seven hours ten minutes, which is the whole book, start to finish. And people can you know go to the gym or go and have a walk in the countryside, and, and you know they, or they can do the whole book in a day. It's a very accessible book. I hope it's supposed to be anyway. You know, the actual copy, when you take out the index, it's about 250 or so pages. And it's not a big, big legal book, as you know. It's, it's a book that's just full of, I hope, interesting stories. And the stories are there partly because I hope they're entertaining. They're really fascinating cases I've done over the years and people I've met and so on. But also because they do many times illustrate the, the core arguments of the book around prisons and drugs and, and, and child and youth crime and youth justice. But yeah, reading the audio book, to be honest, Rob, I was one of those kids who, if the teacher said, you know, who wants to read out loud, my hand would go up. So I had no problem reading out loud and never have done. I was quite happy to do it. And actually, it was quite enjoyable and cathartic to read my own book because every other time I'd read the book had been as part of an editing process which took many, many drafts, I mean, probably a dozen or more, and you're constantly rereading and rechecking and so on. But to actually have the luxury, when we had the final version, to just sit in a small studio with headphones on and a microphone and read the whole thing was actually quite pleasurable. I enjoyed reading my own book. So I hope other people enjoy listening to me reading it as much as I enjoyed reading it out loud. I'm sure they will. And I know you've had such a fantastic, you know, initial response to the book thus far. But just for those people who may not have heard just yet, where can they buy a copy of uh, Justice on Trial from? Well, Justice on Trial is pretty much available from all of the booksellers, uh, certainly Amazon, which many people use, but Waterstones, all the big booksellers and some of the ones that people, perhaps those who don't like the big corporate book booksellers can, can, can also buy from their kind of trusted ethical supplier of books. Basically, it's available from all of the booksellers, so online. And many of the uh, high street booksellers, Waterstones, for example, are stocking the book. So it's available pretty much anywhere. It's also on Amazon. It's also on Kindle. So people just download it instantly on, onto their Kindle or their computer or their phone. And as you say, Audible, so people can listen to it when they're on the move. So yeah, it's available all over the place, Rob. And uh, it's just Google Crystal QC Justice on Trial and people will all just go on Amazon and find it. And uh, hopefully people will either 
order the hardback, which I have to say is quite a beautiful hardback. I, I think you've got a copy, but if you have a finished copy, the title's all done in foil, so it catches the light nicely. So it's a nice thing to have on your shelf. Um, I think I think there's something to be said for a nice fresh hardback on the shelf. But obviously, those who prefer their books digitally, um, you know, it's there as well. Absolutely. It's there in all forms, all shapes and forms. And I must say, it is truly fascinating. Some of the stories, what your journey, what you share. So I would strongly urge people, if they haven't, to definitely go up and pick up a copy. And before we finish up, just want to talk about the, the importance for legal professionals embracing platforms such as LinkedIn, social media in the modern world. How important do you think it is for, for all lawyers, barristers to, to do that? And because you've managed to amass a really impressive LinkedIn following, you've got your own YouTube channel, you've even featured on TikTok. But how important mm. do you think it is for the modern day legal professionals to really embrace social media? I think it's important. I don't think it's essential in the sense that, you know, people can, can, can obviously choose to practice or conduct their work like however they like. But for me, because I have such a passion for communicating my own passion, both for the law, but also for young people, perhaps those who come from backgrounds that are considered non-traditional, to, to have the confidence and just go for it. Those platforms have given me access, as you say, to even my daughter was responsible. My nine-year-old daughter was responsible for my TikTok outing. I thought it was very uh, good, by the me. way, Chris. I mean, I can oh, give you some well, dance I'm, lessons I'm, myself, but I thought it was a first time. It wasn't too bad. Okay, well, that's very kind of you to say. So, so she's got me into that. People can see that on my YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel also has a lot of videos that I did during lockdown in particular. I did a dozen a series of videos during the early parts of lockdown for aimed at law students and young lawyers about things like CVs and applying for pupillage and training contracts, applying for jobs and things like networking and social mobility and how to kind of deal with the fact that maybe if you come from certain backgrounds, you don't have the same networks of contacts as perhaps others do so there's loads of stuff on the youtube channel my twitter feed is at UK, and that that's more for sort of comment on breaking legal stories and kind of like more general kind of social comment and, and stuff to do with the book and as you say linkedin again i i've got a vast following on linkedin which is it's all come about organically just over time and i think linkedin is good because it gives you the sort of broader platform i think i think the the audience for linkedin is much more about sort of either professional people or people who are looking for, you know, for career information and engagement. And whereas Twitter, I think, is much more about political comment and immediate social comment. So covering all these platforms uh, is, is really important to me. And I, I, hope, I hope people get use out of the YouTube content in particular because it, it means a lot to me when I get an email from someone. I had saw, you know, your YouTube video about, you know, to do the bar exams or whatever it is. And that is what it's all about me that's why i do it all it's it, it, you know of course it has a, a benefit hopefully people find out about other stuff i'm doing like tv work I mean, you can still watch my tv series by the way on bbc one which is called crime are we tough enough that's still on uh, bbc one on the iplayer you know it gets attention with the stuff i'm doing but also i think it does give a lot of confidence to a lot of young people who maybe come from a similar background to me and don't and don't think they can they can get into the law and if they do they don't think they can necessarily have the same chances and and, and if people can follow some of that content they'll find out that that, that you know anyone can do anything and that's my belief and i'll try and communicate that by every channel yeah and what a, what a beautiful way to 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 sort of wrap up chris I, I just want to say thanks an absolute million 
It's been a real pleasure having you on, hearing your journey, learning more about the insights of the book. We definitely people should get their, get their copy ASAP. We'll obviously make sure we share all the links and follow-ups um, following the release of, the, of this podcast. But we'd just like to wish you lots of continued success with your book, your legal career. But from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, thanks a million and uh, over and out. Rob, thank you and have a great afternoon. Cheers, Chris.